לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. כל רמה, מאה ושתיים שלוש, And welcome to another edition of Parsha Talk. I'm Rabbi Elliot Malamed in Highland Park, New Jersey at the Highland Park Conservative Temple Congregation on Chimet. Joining me, my good friends, Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanowski, Anjay Chesed, New York City, Rabbi Barry Chesler, Salman, Day, Salman Schechter Day School in Long Island. It's great to see you guys. I want to say we have the most amazing Parsha this week, Parsha Mitzora. If you want to introduce someone to Judaism, start with <laughs> Start with Parshat Mitzorah, because... If they like it, you know you got them. <laughs> if they like it. But I, my proposition, I think, is that there's some very deep ideas here. Con- well, it's only skin deep. <laughs> con- concerning individuals who have skin ailments, house ailments, and other kinds of discharges, which we may not get into. Right. If you get to Chapter 15, though, it overflows with stuff. <laughs> Thank you, Barry Chesler. Well, here's how the Parsha starts. This is the law or the ritual of the Mitzorah, which is translated usually as the leper, but it probably means someone who's afflicted with this skin ailment. Probably a skin ailment that, that's not like psoriasis or eczema or or so it's it, in the research that I've I've read on this, it, they they don't identify uh, a modern skin ailment with uh, of tzarat. It was probably a a scale disease. It had some kind of phenomenology or that 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 you looked white with it. And and here's here's where it's going, which is you look like a dead person when you have this disease. Your skin turns white. And and you lose all the color. And I, my my sense is that that part of what's going on in all of the purity rules is you're coming close to death, and that is reflected on your skin. So your reaction. So a couple of observations. I find the terminology curious. Mitzorah as opposed to an ish with sarat. That the fact that they express it verbally suggests that. It's some kind of active disease that is perhaps changing in some way, certainly changing the person who's afflicted more than we might think when, if we just use a noun to describe the disease uh, as the person has. But, you know, it's striking. There are two cases of Sarah-like things in the Torah. One, of course, is the famous story of Miriam when she becomes white as snow after uh the words about uh, Moses' wife. But the other person, this was one of the signs that God gave to Moshe at the burning bush. Only right. there was just his hand that was afflicted. So it's interesting, Elliot, because you, you know, we think of it in terms of death, the living dead, if your whole body or most of your body is afflicted. But the very first time, it's just a sign of God's presence. Well, isn't it interesting, back to Miriam, you know, 
he, she spoke about Ha'isha HaKushit, that she was black, and her punishment is that she turns completely white. And, and you know, some, I think it was, I think Richard Friedman in his commentary makes this kind of quip, you know, it's a, a the, the irony of the punishment uh, that, that is the reverse of what she spoke about. But um, Jeremy, you, you, in, the, in Tanakh, there are some references to uh, Tzaran and, and uh, the, the, the Haftorah that is normally chanted on the Shabbat includes a story of four uh, of these it, guys. It, it, it does indeed. I think it's Second uh, Kings chapter 7, if I am not mistaken. Is that correct? There were four men, lepers, outside the gate. This is the, this is the, the terrible uh, Aramean uh, siege of Shomron, and Shomron's in a terrible famine, and people are, you know, they're, they're just buying a tiny amount of food for a ridiculous amount of money, and they're all starving to death. And Elisha tells them, you know, this this is turning around, and, and you're going to get you're going to get cheap food. So there are four men, lepers, outside the gate, and and they say to each other, they're lepers. They're outside the gate because they are lepers. At whatever level, it, it's clear to us that the um, there's a kind of primitive, you know, epidemiology. You know, for the past two years, all of us throughout the world, certainly all of us in America, we've been worried about disease and contagion and how do we control. So these folks are outside the city, some sort of contagion, whatever whatever it is that they intuit. And the people say, well, we're just going to starve to death here. We're going to just, if we, if we throw ourselves on the mercy of the Aramean camp, maybe they'll take care of us. When they get to the camp, God has done a miracle. He's driven the, the, uh, the soldiers away, and they have all the riches of the, of the camp. And they, um, they are very civic. Even though they've been Mitzoraim, even though they've been, been exiled from the community, they're worried about the rest of the, of the city in Shonron. Vayomru, Yishorehu, lochen anachnu osim hayom hazeh. Lochen anachnu osim, we're not doing well. This is a day of good news. And we are not sharing the good news with our fellows. So they go and they tell the people and they come and they have the food and, and the siege is lifted and the famine ends and everybody's doing, everybody's doing wonderfully. It's, a, it's a, um, an image that salvation sometimes comes through, so to speak, Les uh, Miserables, right? The, the most wretched of society. The, the loneliest, saddest, most battered people actually, in a case like this, turn out to be the instruments of salvation. Now, the wonderful, 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 she, she, she died before the state, so you can't really call her an Israeli poet, but she's a modern Hebrew poet. The Palestinian poet. She's the Palestinian poet, and I don't mean Mahmoud Darwish, I mean uh, Rachel. She, uh, she was, she's like, I think of her as the Hebrew Emily Dickinson, just beautiful, beautiful small lyrics. And she has a poem about this, and it's very strange. It's, it's, it's a little hard to know exactly what to make of this poem. She says, I do not want salvation from the mouth of the leper. I do not want, I accept no promise of salvation if it comes from the mouth of the leper, hatahor yivaser vegaal hatahor. Let the pure promise, let the pure uh, announce and redeem the pure. Ve'im yadolo timsaligol, and if he's too poor to redeem, as nivcharlelim pol b'mitzukat hamatzor or layom b'sora hagadol. 
I would rather fall in the crisis of the siege on the eve before the great promise gleams. She seems to be saying something like, uh, we here in this early state, we kibbutznikim, we have to use good methods to get to the, to the um, good methods to get to the redeemed world, not, not bad methods. As a matter of fact, this poem that I just read a piece of was printed on the front page of Haaretz the day after the, uh, the Irgun blew up the King David Hotel. And the meaning of which was what I just said, like, we're, we're fighting for a new future, but we cannot use the methods of the quote-unquote mitzvah, the ugly, the ugly or, or um, you know, stricken methods. We have to use only the pure methods. But I also think it's like a bizarre and perverse misunderstanding of this great story, which is that the people who you think are kind of like the losers, so to speak, or the, or the wretched, actually they have the message of Bissorah HaGadol. They have the message of a possible redemption. So I, I think that that's, for me, that story that's usually in the Haptarah is really quite, quite moving. That's fascinating, you know, but, and not only that, but, but the, it seems that the, the gist of the Parsha here of, of Mitzorah is to be compassionate to the person who is afflicted. After all, you know, the Kohen diagnoses this person, the Kohen has to do the purification rituals on this person. And all of these rituals are, are in effect, a way of bringing people back into the community. Uh, I used this last year, you know, to talk about uh, the idea that, you know, here we are, we've been, so many of us have been in isolation. And the whole psychological dislocation that we experience by being um, isolated from everybody, by being indoors, by not, you know, wanting to spread or, or um, endanger ourselves by coming into contact with the, the disease, that the, the raging disease outside, um, and then to be affirmed. And, and you know, we never really had a, 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 a ceremony of coming back into the synagogue uh, because, you know, it was staggered over, over the course of many, many weeks. And to a certain extent, it's still staggered. I mean, a lot of people are still very apprehensive about, about resuming the um, uh, a regular routine life of, of communal worship. It's a very, very strange time still. Uh, and yet, and so you need a, a way of marking that transition. And, and I think what, the, what is going on in the Parsha is the Kohanim are ordaining a ritual of transition, of taking the individual who has experienced this and, you know, through blood and all sorts of sprinklings and all sorts of different kinds of things, they're taking this individual and bringing them back into, into society. One of the pieces of evidence for what you just said about the, the sort of fundamental compassion um, about this, and, and you know, it, of course it is possible to read this as stigmatizing illness and quote-unquote ableism or whatever it is that we would say, um, but the sacrifice for the mitzorah is one of the, there's not a, a huge number of these, but there's a handful um, of what's called korban olevi yored, a, a, a sacrifice of variable amounts. Rich people should offer um, a, 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 a bull or a ram or... It's a sliding scale. <laughs> sliding scales. Uh, and, and poorer people can offer birds, but the poorest of the poor, the poorest people, they can just offer a little bit of flour. A little flour. And, and, so, and so it's a way of saying... Um, the, in the Corbano Levio Red, uh, we have as, as communal communal imperative. 
we have to find a way to bring everyone back in. And listen, if, if you can afford it, you should give a good sacrifice, but it doesn't matter. Whatever you can afford, that's going to be a good sacrifice. Make a donation. I think to add to what you say is that if we think of the disease as um, somehow symbolic of death while still alive, a yeah. living death as it were, yes. that what the ritual comes to teach us is that the disease itself is not the end, that there is an aftermath, there is a kind of resolution and that you can wait it out. Yeah. And we all know of people for whom that was not the case. Um, not all diseases are susceptible to that, but it's especially important for a disease where it's described as being so disfiguring that there is some measure of hope, that uh, we understand that there is a future. Let's take a moment to talk about the disease that could come to your household. So uh, this, we're going to fast forward to verse 33 of chapter 14. When you come into the land of Canaan, that I am giving you, as an inheritance, and I will give you a plague on your house, a plague on your house. In How your fortunate! <laughs> you know, and, and it's interesting, and I mentioned this before we started uh, recording, you know, the, the, the rabbis pick up on this and they say, you know, the, 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 the expression kitavo has a kind of heraldic quality to it. It's like, oh, this is really exciting because we have a passage in, in Deuteronomy where it says kitavo lars. I mean, it's a big passage. Most of it is quoted at the Haggadah for the Seder, the pilgrim ritual of the first fruits, where it's very exciting. And here it's like kitavo lars, you know, and you're going to have a plague on your house. You're going to have fungus in your house or molds or all sorts of stuff. And the rabbis, you know, create a, a beautiful midrash saying that, that the people were very excited to occupy homes of the Canaanites because the Canaanites had, uh, you know, uh, uh, secreted some of their uh, wealth in the walls. They hid, they hid their jewelry, they hid their gold and silver in the walls uh, so that, you know, none of the... Uh, conquering Israelites would be able to uh, possess them, but the Israelites who conquered these homes were very, very excited to tear them down when they got fungus. It's a, it's a kind of backhanded way of saying, uh, you know, of talking about this plague as, a, as not as a misfortune, but as something that is positive, um, and, and seeing, the, seeing unfortunate reality through rose-colored glasses. But... Um, I, I'm I'm fascinated by it, and Jeremy, maybe you want to talk about this for a second, because having just completed this book on mycology, the study of fungi, um, I think the more that I look at it, fun, fungi, is it fungi or fungi? In, in Italian, it would be fungi, right? <laughs> if you're reading, if you're reading a. If you're reading a, a linguini alla fungi. <laughs> yes, right. So, so. It's a fascinating world, the world of fungi. I just, yes, I just read this book called The Entangled Life by the writer with a spectacular name, Merlin Sheldrake. He's, <laughs> he's, 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 you know, he teaches at uh, Cambridge or something like that. He used to teach at Hogwarts, but then he moved over to Cambridge. <laughs> but it, it is a crazy and fascinating book. The guy, the guy is a mycologist, a, a, a fungus specialist, and, and all kinds of crazy things that I knew nothing about, about the role of, uh, of fungus 
you know, in, in biology, the, the fungi grow in these massive connected underground, incredibly, incredibly thin, but incredibly, incredibly wide sheets called mycelium. Yes. And so when a, when a mushroom pops up, it is a flower of a vast, vast, vast mycelium covering the earth many times around. Um, and, uh, and, you know, he writes about, he writes about all kinds of things, including, you know, truffles as delicacies and psychedelic properties of mushrooms, but also incredibly about the way that, that, uh, funguses have the, the, the capacity to break down all kinds of organic and even inorganic material. So they, they have a role perhaps to play in, in environmental crises, but they also are in just indispensable. And I knew nothing of this in getting, um, in getting uh, uh, nutrients from the soil into trees. And when they join up with algae, forming lichens, breaking down minerals. And, and the guy said the amazing line, the minerals in your body, when you, when you have you know, an iron or you have calcium or something like that, the minerals, they are probably uh, rocks that lichens, that is to say algae plus fungi okay. have broken down, put into the soil. And then it's come up into your plant. Isn't that amazing? So yeah, we can't we can't live without fungi. Uh, they're necessary for breaking down. Of course, you know the unfortunately sometimes you do get athlete's foot, or or and some people do get uh, fungal infections are, are are horrible. I mean they're 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 people they can be very very dangerous. However, this is a fungal infection in your home. And many, many people have, have experienced that, especially in, in Highland Park, New Jersey, because a lot of people have their basements flooded when, it's, when there are heavy rains. And, and you know, when, when you have damp, dark uh, environments, uh, that's, that's where you're going to get the fungus among us. And, and you need to call your mold busters to come in and get them. But in the Torah, the, the experience of fungus in your home so it's interesting because we, we you know, in, in the adjacent cultures, they would attribute this to all sorts of kinds of, you know, misfortune and punishment and spirits and whatever. But the Torah is uh, remarkably um, void of all of these supernatural things. There, there's no supernatural causation. It's not a punishment. It's not because of demons. It's because sometimes mold happens. Sometimes you get a moldy home, and it, it, if, if it's really bad, it's really bad. I mean, there are people that, that have such sensitivity to, to molds that they really can't live in their homes. They have to move. If you, you know, some kind of, it's a, I knew someone who had this, um, it's not an environmental, but the, you know, the, the mold throws off all sorts of spores, are all very toxic, and, and you can be very sensitive and develop all sorts of diseases, from that, I don't think that that was the issue back then. It's just, it's just annoying. It's terrible thing. Well, the way you presented, Elliot, is that it's something natural. Yeah. But that impulse to supernaturalize it, it carries itself through the rabbinic period, because Sarat, which we talked about earlier, the rabbis identify with Lashon uh, Hara. But, but and, what do they identify for the home? Well, there's a curious sugya in um, Sanhedrin where the Ben Sorer Umoreh, the stubborn and rebellious son, and the Beta Menugah, the house that's been afflicted by this um, plague, and um, 
The third thing, of course, escapes me at the moment. I, um, uh, I, well, first of all, Job is in there too. Um, about things that where yeah. there is a big debate among the rabbis where one says this never happened. And another guy says, I was there. You know, I was on the grave of the rebellious child. The rebellious child. Oh, it's the Iranidachat. It's a city that devoted itself to idol worship. Or I saw the remains of the, the tell, the ruin of the city of uh, that devoted the itself to slavery. And I was uh, saw the remains of this house that was plagued. And you get this curious thing in the Talmud where you get opinions that cannot stand side by side in human discourse. It cannot be that one person says, I was there, and the other person says, this can never have happened. Because those people have nothing to say to each other. Interesting. And yet the Talmud puts them side by side. Or one, I mean, visually, we have to see one on top of the other, I guess. But it's a curious way of looking at the world that the Talmud preserves, because the Talmud in a sense, thrives on paradox, which we, especially as rational Westerners, I think spend a good deal of our intellectual lives trying to resolve rather than embrace it. You know, actually, yeah. when you say that, Barry, it makes me think that, it makes me think about what we consider to be, you know, decisive evidence. Like if if I had a theory, let's, let's just say I, I had a theory that um, I'll make up, you know, something that's in that's in our culture, but like, it's not true. There was no near-death experiences and you don't see the light and, and it's lack of oxygen to the brain or, or whatever. This is just, it's, it's, it's a brain phenomenon that, that can be explained in purely physical ways that needs no other explanation. And somebody else says, you know, I actually had that experience. Yeah. And, and we, how would we, how would we put those two things together? We, we might say, well, I'm not going to deny your personal interpretation of your own experience, but I don't really think you're correct about what happened. And the other guy says, well, you and your theories can go stick it in your ear. I, I know what I saw. Um, so maybe something like that. I mean, I think well, we abide, abide that with religion, because I think that if we take our own religion seriously, we have to admit in some way that other religions cannot be true the way they represent themselves. And so I think that when we're honest, we could say that Christianity and Islam, to use the two Western examples, are great, meaningful religions, but we don't we can't accept their their storyline. We, we being, can't accept that we can't accept that Muhammad was the final prophet. And, right. Or that Jesus was resurrected on the third day. You know, maybe the fourth day we would The fourth day is fine. No, but not the third day. <laughs> All right. So Go ahead. Just make, no, make so, but that we can make some sense of, right? Okay. We live and here in America. We live amongst people who profess the three great monotheistic religions. And on good days for each of us as individuals and as a society, we live in peace. But there is a limit to what we can say to them, right? We can respect people and we could share what we believe. But at some point, we have to each go our separate way. I, I actually don't. I'm actually not with you exactly in the same thing because I think that. I think that once we get into the realms of of these things, most of our religious truths are, I would say, poetic and non-literal, such that, I mean, if you want to insist, 
no, no, no. Muhammad had the final revelation that exists in humanity, and that's just a physical fact. Then I say, okay, we can't be compatible, but but I think that we can have cultural traditions that we treat as as poetry. absolutely. But did Muhammad rise up to heaven on a horse from the Temple Mount? I, I don't bit, think so. It was a little bit to the west of the Temple Mount. Right? Well, okay, so, so so go ahead. Just and I just you know, Masasha Haya. I used to work with a woman who said once that she and her family practiced astral projection, out-of-body experiences. Now, it's hard to keep a straight face when someone says that, but I managed. But at some point, there's nothing that we can say to each other. I don't think that's possible. And she's telling me this was something that happened to her and her family. And, you know, she was a great person. That wasn't the point. But at some point, the conversation cannot advance. And we have to say that, you know, this is your truth and this is my truth. Okay. Elliot, you know, Elliot, if I can just say one, just one thing about the, the non-supernatural. I, I, I do think that clearly the story of Miriam in Bamidbar means that maybe not every instance of Tzarat is a punishment, but her instance of Tzarat is a punishment. That's okay? skin. I'm talking about houses. How's, how's I, think, I think this still, still goes to our passage here in Baikra 14 and 15, yeah. which is not interested, is interested in dealing with this practically. Yeah. Um, maybe there is a metaphysical, you know, cast to the story because the ritual, the ritual is a little bit, you know, it's high ritual. It involves birds flying away to the countryside and, and whatever. Um, maybe there's a little metaphysical stuff between the lines there, but I, but I just want to concur with you that the fact of Miriam's story does not mean that everybody in this story is presumed to be punished. Indeed. This story just is, is a society dealing with a problem and says we got to figure out a way. But this is a solution. The people right. back so, into the community and the houses safe again. Let's 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 just segue right now to the this Shabbat is is it's a really big Shabbat. Shabbat Gadol. Shabbat Gadol, the great Shabbat. Uh, known because a uh, it is the Shabbat before Pesach and b because of the Haftarah and and on the theme of reconciliation and and here this is what you know piqued my my uh, interest in what you said Barry because you have you know the the possibility of irreconcilable narratives uh, in 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 different religious narratives they're they're not reconcilable but um, what Malachi Malachi in the He's the, the final, it's the final prophecy of the books of prophecy, uh, about 500 BCE of the returning exiles. And the, the last two sentences are part of the Haftarah of the last, you know, in this uh, three sentences, three verses. Zichru Torah Moshe Avdi, remember the, the Torah of Moses, my servant. Asher tziviti oto b'chorev, that I commanded him in Horev. Uh, I'll call Yisrael the, the laws, the statutes. Behold, I am sending to you Elijah, Elijah the prophet. Okay, before the coming of the great of God, the great day in which the Lord will will arrive. And here's the reconciliation. He shall reconcile the hearts of fathers with sons. 
and the hearts of sons with their fathers. Penavovi kete et aaretz cherem, lest I come and destroy the land and, and, and make it desolate. And what is so fascinating there is that the final word, the final word of prophecy is exactly what you've been saying, which is reconciliation. Here it's a very specific kind of reconciliation, reconciliation of parents and children, fathers and, and sons, you know, quite literally, but, but certainly figuratively, all parents and all children, with the understanding that a tremendous chasm can develop, arise between these generations. I think it's probably among the most painful experiences that a parent can have or a child can have, the sense of, you know, estrangement, estrangement from a parent, uh, abuse or, or, or any other kind of um, just horrible circumstances that push people apart, parents from children and children from parents. It's, it's probably the saddest thing that any of us encounter, certainly as rabbis and, and, and just in, in human experience. And here, Elijah saying, you know, that's the reconciliation is going to come. That's that's the harbinger of redemption, and I don't know how you react. I mean, you know, and redemption is of course the theme of Pesach, and what is he doing? What is Malachi doing here? What how is he reframing the whole understanding with the personality of Elijah? And and you know, maybe we need to drink a lot of wine here uh, to 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 really um, you know ponder this. But uh, in the thirty seconds that we have left. Give me, give me some of your best thoughts on, on reconciliation and redemption, Barry. On one hand, I think it's presented as a miracle if it requires prophetic intervention to bring about. I, on the other hand, if it doesn't happen, the world will be destroyed. And we're actually commanded, as it were, to wait it out. So I think it actually gives a great message of hope that we're not going to solve all of the world's problems, all of our own problems in this world. But we can, with good intention, puzzle things through. What about therapy? (laughs) Well, therapy could be part of it. But in other words, I think sometimes we want everything to happen. Like you were talking earlier about the purist. And when you had mentioned earlier, when we were talking before about the King David Hotel. Um, and the purity of people's opinions I, related with the, the poem of, of Rachel, we can't always have purity in our life. And we have to allow for the impure. I think that's part of the message of the Torah reading, that the impure is part of our life, but it's not the end of our life. In other words, and the, I, the chaos and, and the messiness of life is going to intrude on on Right. Our and, you know, when we think of the Haggadah, the great image of the Haggadah is of reconciled parents and children, because the Seder itself is supposed to be a dialogue between the parent and the child. And one that is of respect and teaching. And that's what carries the tradition forward. As opposed to master and disciple, which is the rabbinic culture, rabbinic, you know, the rabbis create, you know, this the, the the model that we interact with our masters. Also, that's that's hovering in the seder as well. Indeed, but uh, I don't, Jeremy. You have you have a, a uh, you know, a, first of all, I just want to observe that uh, that Malachi, being the, the final prophetic writer, um, the fact that he already has this uh, view that Eliyahu Navi is going to be the harbinger of a new world. That tells you how old 
that that little yeah, trope, yeah. that religious yeah, trope, is incredibly, incredibly old. But I, I just I'm, I'm now not really speaking about um, the the meaning of the deep question that you asked. Just an observation textually, which is that Elijah in the in the stories about him in in the in this second half of the book of First Kings and then the very beginning of the book of Second Kings, he is like a lone wolf. You know, he does have a disciple, Elisha ben Shaphat, but, uh, but he's, a totally, he's, a, he's a loner. And he zings around and he shows up and then he disappears again. And he does not, he's not portrayed to have a family. In fact, when he goes to Chorev, he goes, he sort of replicates Moses' journey. He goes back to Mount Sinai. God speaks to him out there. And, you know, God's not in the wind, not in the earthquake, not in the fire, but there's still small voice. And at one point, or actually two points, two, twice God says to him, what the hell are you doing here? And he says, you know, the people have a, the people have all abandoned the covenant. And I am left all alone. And uh, and you know, Elijah comes to every bris. And one of the one of the things that we like sort of tell about that story is he comes to every bris because he said falsely, ah, oh, the Jewish people have abandoned the covenant. Nah, we have not abandoned the covenant, and you have to come and look at it. Yeah. And and I think maybe there's something like that going on here, which is to say. You know, I'm all alone. You know, maybe we need to counteract that a little bit and connect people and not be so all alone. Human connection, familial connection. Uh, and, and it's, a perfect, it's a perfect opening to the Seder because the Seder is really, you know, in its, in its excellence, it's, it's, a, it's a moment of coming together. And, and Elijah is also present at the Seder. I mean, you're never alone at the Seder. I guess, you know, certainly many people have been over the last two years, but ideally, the ideal Seder is to be together with people. And so Elijah is present with people in the covenantal way that we are forming covenants, you know, around our tables or at a Brit Milah, but certainly with Pesach coming out, and we all have our Kos Eliyahu filling it up uh, so that he'll have a drink and enjoy. And that's, that's, um, that's part of the Simcha that's coming on the great day that uh, Malachi is speaking of, which ends our time together. We have come to another conclusion of Parsha Talk, and we want to thank everybody for joining us, either watching or listening. Thank you for your comments. There is a t-shirt that's available. You can get the link from Barry's Facebook page. And um, we look forward, we're going to be with you next week, even though Rabbi Kalmanovsky is flying off to Israel soon enough, but we're going to get a, a, a Parsha Talk in before Pesach, so that you'll all have some extra things to talk about at your seders. In the meantime, we want to wish everyone a wonderful Shabbat, a Shabbat Agadol, a great and beautiful Shabbat. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom.